encourage the rest of you, if you brought a Bible with you or some kind of fancy app, if you would open it up to uh, John chapter 4. We've been walking through the Gospel of John for several um, weeks now, and we've been on this specific passage. This is now the third week, and I pleaded with the Lord to let me move forward, um, but we're, st- we're still here in John chapter 4. I'm... I'm one of those people that like to get a lot of things done, and I like to, I like to see progress and movement, and um, even in that, it's just unique how the, the Lord teaches us what we need, not necessarily what we want. That little phrase we just sang in that uh, song, uh, Lord, you guide my heart, and I love that because our hearts need to be guided. Our hearts need guidance. We lose focus. Um, we put our eyes on the wrong things. I, I remember Peter, um, when Jesus comes to kind of reinstate him in the ministry, if you remember that, and the charcoal fire and all that, and Jesus prophesies of Peter's life. He's going to have a pretty hard life, ultimately death. And then what does Peter say in his immediate response to that? Like, what about this guy? What about John? And he's like, don't look at John. Peter, look at me. And when the first time Peter heard that, remember Peter walking on water? begin to sink. Peter, don't look at the water. I want you to look at me. You focus on me. And I feel like that's God's call to our hearts, even today. And the crazy climate that we've gone through is, listen, Luke, I don't want you to look at them. I don't want you to look at the news. I want you to look at me. Keep your eyes on me. This is what Jesus would tell this woman at the well as she began um, to look uh, to men to bring satisfaction as she looked to even religious things. Remember she asked this religious question and Jesus just kept bringing her attention and focus back. Hey, I want you to focus on me. So think about all the things in, in your mind that are racing and all the things you gotta do. I'm looking at the skinnier versions of you as I will until two weeks from now. We'll eat all the stuffing and pies and all the things, right? We got a lot of things going on and I feel like the voice of God to our heart has got to be this. Hey, I want you to look at me. Keep your focus on me. Let me pray for us. God, as we dive into your word today, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate it so that we would see the face of Jesus and in seeing the face of Jesus, we would see the heart of the Father. Convict us of sin. Encourage us where we're weak and weary. Redirect our attention to the most important things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. If you caught the last couple weeks, you probably are familiar with the story of the woman at the well that Jesus goes through Samaria, finds a woman at the well there drawing water, ostracized by her community. Certainly, we see that she's had five husbands, is living with a six, and Jesus begins this encounter with her, this discussion with her, this dialogue, and Jesus keeps taking it back from physical to spiritual. She's there to draw physical water. Jesus says, I can give you spiritual water. And we talked just briefly uh, last week, and the result of this was uh, that this woman goes back to her town and immediately becomes this great evangelist. So I want to break that down kind of with God's heart for us. This is a very simple sermon but I think it's a very important and needed sermon. It's very practical, but it's very near to the heart of God because Jesus himself said, just as I have been sent, I am now sending you. And if the church in the West is guilty of anything, it's that we've often been focused on our own things. We have made a God out of our own image and we have bowed to worship ourselves. And this is God bringing this focus back to him. I want you to be about what my heart is about. Jumping in in verse 35, Jesus again talking to his disciples after this has happened and the woman has left and they're trying to figure out kind of what's going on. Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you that you would reap for that which you didn't labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did, she says. So when the Samaritans came for him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This is God's word. So in just a very simply titled sermon, we'll call this a missional life. And there's three aspects that I'm gonna look at in this lady's life that radically changed her and radically changed her little town there in Samaria. A missional life first is personally changed. It's personally changed. And we talked about this briefly last week, but look at the joy in this lady's life where her shame becomes the anthem of her new story. Her wounds become healed scars that ultimately become trophies of grace to show what God has done in her life. Now we can't miss this part. The joy of her life is tied to walking in obedience to Jesus. Walking in obedience to Jesus produces joy. This is what Jesus even talked about. Springs of living water are gonna come from the inside to the outside. And this is where real Christianity really begins. Jesus promised that the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I've come to give you life and life overflowing. Yet you look at most Christians or people who call themselves Christians or most people in the church and their life is far from over uh, abundant, far from overcoming, far from filled with peace and with joy. And I believe that's because we've forgotten to walk with Jesus in obedience and faith. And we see immediately that's what happened in this lady's life. You ever, you ever been to a restaurant and they brought you something or, hey, it's Thanksgiving. You're gonna go visit some family maybe and, um, and you got that aunt or that grandmother that cooks the same thing every time and most of it you like, but at least growing up, there was always that weird salad that they would bring out that had like jello in it or fruit in it and onions and peas. It was this weird thing and I always just looked at it like, who eats that? Everybody but me, I guess. I just, you know, you ever been served something like that and you take one bite and it is disgusting and then you want to share it with your friends? You're like, oh, taste this, it's disgusting, right? Or, or hey, smell this, it's disgusting. Uh, no, I don't wanna smell that. You just said it was disgusting. And I feel like that's how a lot of people try to do evangelism. You spend your entire life complaining about your church and griping about your wife and ignoring your kids and disappointed that God didn't come through where you wanted him to come through and then out of compulsion, you go to your neighbor and said, hey, you should trust Jesus with your life so you can be as miserable as I am. And the neighbor says, uh, no, <laughs> my life miserable on its own. You see, you see the contrast in someone who's not walking in satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction with God, yet trying to proclaim that Jesus is the bread of life and yet they're running to the world for everything else that it satis to bring satisfaction. And, and there's something that doesn't work there. That's why a missional life always begins with a personal change, a personal transformation in your own heart, in your own life. First Peter, Peter says it this way, First Peter 3.15, you've heard this verse before. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Let me give you some time if you brought a Bible, just to go there. We're gonna spend just a minute there in First Peter 3. But there's a few things I really want you to see. And if you take notes that you would maybe underline this is power packed as Peter describes what's happening in this lady's life, the Samaritan woman. He begins to describe what happens in our own hearts as we follow hard after Christ. He says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ, you might underline that word, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks about the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it, again, underline, with gentleness and respect. This passage talks about the position or the posture of our hearts towards Christ or the position of Christ in our hearts. It's an assumption that in your heart, you have this reverence and passion. I think the NIV uses the word revere Christ in your hearts. That word revere, we don't even use very much anymore, but it's so packed and loaded with its meaning. Or the word honor in the ESV, in your hearts honor Christ. Again, a word that we know not much of in today's culture. 
we seem to have eliminated the culture and even the word or use of the word honor. But here Peter is saying, listen, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Everything flows from the heart, Proverbs 4 tells us. We have to make him Lord in our hearts. Not just a ticket to heaven, not just something that eases the conscience. We have to make him Lord in our hearts. Lordship is this understanding that my life and my desires and my wants all fall under the joyful submission of Christ. And if my life and God's word disagrees about something, I'm not gonna go look for what my itching ears wanna hear. You can always find someone to agree with you. I'm gonna look at the word of God and what it says about what I'm doing and the decisions I'm making. That we would make him Lord in our hearts, Peter's talking about, would honor him Christ, honor, in our hearts would honor Christ as Lord. This is how the Christian life works. As we follow Jesus, this living water, springs of living water, as he talks about in our passage, begin to well up. This is what he says in verse 14, the water that I will give him become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman replied, sir, give me this water. So it's inside out. We walk with Jesus, we're radically changed and from the inside out, this water begins to flow. It doesn't work outside in. It doesn't work, the Christian life doesn't work very long if you're posing and putting on some kind of game face and mustering up the courage to go out there and make everyone believe that I'm more holy than I actually am. No, this is something that happens organically and naturally as you walk with Jesus. The spring of water welling up to eternal life begins to display as Galatians would call it spiritual fruit. We make Jesus Lord of our lives. He produces a real difference in us. Seen best as enduring hope or lasting joy. So many places we could go and look at this. But ultimately the point is that it produces change in us. Character transformation. And somehow immediately when this lady, this Samaritan woman, goes back into her town, immediately they notice something radically different in her. These are people who wouldn't even go to the, she wasn't invited to go to the well with them early in the morning. She was ostracized culturally, yet she comes in with this announcement and they see such a difference in her life that they follow what she has said. It all starts with personally changed life. And then the second point, a missional life is strategically positioned. We might even keyword here maybe missional awareness awareness notice here that the lady didn't pack up and move to Jerusalem or Alexandria Egypt to share the gospel no the most natural thing that she did she experienced Jesus she was radically changed she went back home <clears throat> she went back to her city to her village it was the most natural thing Jesus didn't even have to send her she just went now scripture uses this when we, uh, our home or our household, the, the Greek word for that is this word oikos. I know you think it's probably yogurt. Um, it, was, it, it meant this before it meant yogurt. And I want you to write that down. Everybody's got a card on your table with the little word on there in the scripture. We're gonna come to that in a little bit, not right now. But, but this idea of oikos is this extended household, the definition, I think I have that on the screen. It's the most natural and common environment for evangelism to occur. It's a group of eight to 15 people with whom you share life most closely, your sphere of greatest influence. It's also the people to whom God wants to prepare you to become an ideal instrument of his grace. Just case in point, this lady. Gospel radically changed her from the inside out to making a difference, her immediate response is to go to her oikos, to go to her household, to go to her family, to go to the people who see her. If you have the opportunity, say CNN or Fox News or one of these other news stations calls you and says, hey, we've got, uh, got this incredible opportunity for you. What I want you to do, we're gonna give you three minutes and I want you to share the gospel with the world. And so you're prepared and you're studied up and you're ready and you're given the opportunity and somehow, through technology, your little presentation of the gospel is gonna be shared to the entire 
world. Everyone's going to be able to see it. Everyone's going to be able to check it out. You got people over there in the villages that are watching it on little solar powered devices where, where, they, where, they, where they don't have electricity. Your little gospel presentation. Now, how many people are going to respond to your presentation? Well, we, we, we simply just don't know. It'd be incredible if you had that opportunity. Maybe the spirit would move in many people, but you know who the people are really gonna know if what you're saying is really true and valid as you brag on Jesus? It's gonna be the people who know you, who know you well, who, 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 who work with you. There are chances that many people would believe you, but those that know you, those that see your life up close, those that know that your walk and your talk aligns with each other, those people have a front row seat in your life. They're gonna know if you're really telling the truth. They're gonna know if, you're, if, you're, if your life really backs up your message. Your front row. You ever had a front, front row seat at a concert? I mean front row, just right there in the front. I grew up in the 90s when Christian music started becoming kind of really cool. Like before the 90s, you know, Lord prepared me to be a sanctuary and the Gaithers is kind of all we had, Right? Um, maybe Petra started early nineties, but yes, or Al Denson. Okay. Um, this is the Christian bubble that I lived in. Um, but you know, mid nineties, DC talk comes out, right? I was a DC talk fanatic. Every one of their albums. So started with cassettes, had the cassettes, then moved to CDs. I had, I had them all. Then I had a chance with freshman year of college to go to see DC talk and their supernatural tour right at the Cajun Dome. So me and my buddies, we all just packed up and we left in my red Ford Taurus, fit like eight people in that thing, man. Headed down there, we were just, we, we got so excited. We, um, we, we printed out these stencils and put Jesus freak on the back of our, uh, the back of, uh, the back of our car. I'm serious, we did this, yes. Took the paint off of some people's. Um, we were super, yeah, so we get down there and we had floor seats and we were early and uh, we get there and we kind of meander our way to the front. And it was amazing. I have never screamed so loud in my life. I'm glad I didn't know Ashley at this time. She would have lost uh, all romantic interest in me. I, I was ridiculous. So much so that one of our buddies uh, had brought an orange jacket. We were that close. And he threw it up on stage and Toby Mac put it on. <laughs> How incredible is this? And I've got pictures of Toby Mac wearing Jeremy's orange jacket. We were that close, right? A, con a concert is experienced different that close. And the point that I'm trying to make is that God has planted you in a place and he's given some people front row seats to your life. Not just what you talk about. No, they see how you actually live your life. They see what you do when you're stressed. They see what you do when you're unfairly blamed. They see what you do when you walk through heartache. They see your life in 2020 when you're pressed by on every side. Is Jesus really your hope? Is that something you just talk about? Or is that real lasting source of satisfaction and joy coming from the inside out? Those people have a front row seat to your life. The front rows of our life continue to be the arenas where our testimonies can have the greatest possible impact. Why is that? Because your life lived out in front of your oikos or in front of your eight to 15 people or in front of your front row demonstrates your faith, whether you want it to or not, whether you think it does or not. And we naturally have more quality opportunities to share our hope in Jesus with people who are closest to us and see the real values of our lives. Naturally and instinctively, this woman did just that. She took the gospel that she had just heard to her household. And here's the point that we've been strategically positioned with the gospel. You with your story and your unique access into those people's lives are strategically positioned as light in the midst of darkness. Where do you put the light? You put it in the dark. We've got a thousand flashlights in our house and I never know where they are until the lights go out. And then we're all frantically looking and then we find, you know, 99 of them in Hudson's bed. I don't know what's going on there. It's kind of weird, right? You put, the light is most valuable in the dark. Now church, 
we've just gone through 2020. We're still going through 2020. And the culture has gotten darker and the political climate has gotten darker. Healthcare has gotten darker. Everything seems like it has gotten darker. Where do you put the light? In the middle of the dark. As darkness tries to overcome it, what does John say? The darkness cannot overcome the light. And this is when the church, instead of being divided and arguing with each other and debating and trying, drawing all these lines of separation, where we should be shining the brightest because we've got a, a well inside of us. Yet I feel like as a church, not just talking just about my church, but as the church, I think we've blown our opportunity. Because we took the bait of the enemy to focus on the lesser things, to debate about the masks, to debate about the elections, to debate about all the, and they're important things. Yes, they are. But we're not here for that. We're here to proclaim the gospel with our lives and with our mouths in every arena that God has planted us in, every one of them. Gospel first gospel for and we got to be thinking with that kind of lens because we've been strategically planted or positioned around our neighbors and our co-workers and the people we interact with those 8 to 15 people that see that have front row seats to our lives now normally those 8 to 15 people are going to start asking you have you have you have even more access to their life when two things happen one personal crisis when personal crisis happens, you all of a sudden have more access into their life, especially into their spiritual world than you've ever had before. Personal crisis, you know, a relational crisis. They're going through difficulty in marriage. Maybe they went through a divorce. They're having problems with their kids. Their kids are becoming teenagers. They're not sure how to deal with all of this. Maybe their parents are getting sick. On and on we could go. There's relational crisis. And then, then they're asking even for help. Hey, hey, tell me, maybe you could help me with this. Or what kind of programs might your church offer to help me walk through this? Or I really need community. Can I just show up? That's why I love this whole idea of a missional community, that we're not there just to kind of talk about all the problems we have and vent about how hard life is. No, we're there to be on mission to our eight to 15, to the front row that's around us and to invite them in and give them a taste of this is what real gospel community looks like. No, we're not perfect. We're the furthest thing from perfect, but that's part of it. We are all sinners in need of grace, right? This is the fellowship of the brokenhearted that have found hope in Jesus. Financial crisis, midlife crisis, all these opportunities for you to bring hope into that situation. It's the personal crisis. You have extra influence or access into people's lives. And then second is cultural crisis. This is what we're currently living through. Tragedy or difficulty or politics. We're living in the very middle of this. Unlike anything I've ever experienced. Everyone wants to know, what do you think about the election? Pastor, who'd you vote for? This is what people, what is your, what is your opinion? Hey, you know what you do in those situations? You share the gospel. That's what you do. They have given you a platform for you to speak and that is when you share the gospel. Yeah, maybe not the whole Romans road, but you can convince them that your hope is not in something else, but it is in Jesus ultimately. That's how you start to share the gospel. You open up access or door into your inner world to say, man, why in the world do you have joy in the midst of this? Hey, you just lost your job. How in the world do you still have peace? Hey, those people, your own... You're going to Thanksgiving. Man, can you imagine the conversations over the Thanksgiving table this year with the crazy uncle or the crazy aunt or the opinionated cousins all dropping these things, all cancel culture, right? Separating everyone. You have such a platform to let people know that ultimate hope is found in Jesus and him alone. Yet, Peter warns us again in that Peter passage. Just jump back in there before we go back to John 4. It says that we do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Again, these are two values that we just do not even see in culture. Gentleness and respect. What we see is harshness and disrespect. It is at an all-time high in our society. At least in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like it. 
But with Jesus Christ revered and placed as Lord of us, you see, you're personally changed and strategically positioned to share the hope of the gospel in that setting. Again, it's not just words either. What would Paul remind us? The church at Corinth, that the kingdom doesn't come just in words, but in power. Brings me to the last point. Supernaturally compelling. A missional life. Personally changed, strategically positioned, supernaturally compelling. I love this in verse 42. You probably caught it as we read it. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. At first, they believed because of what she had said. Her life was supernaturally compelling. But that's not enough to help people really walk in their faith. No, they have to meet Jesus themselves. Parents, this is such an encouragement for us. If you preach Jesus as Lord with your mouth, your kids are on the, what did Jason say the other day? The frontiest of front rows, right? They get, they, they get to see it. I think we should put, that's a theological term now. We should put that in some kind of dictionary. The frontiest of front, your kids see your life. They know how you apologize to each other, husband and wife. They know how you walk through difficulty. They know how you handle, not just what everyone see, they see if it's real or if it's not. And if 15 years of youth ministry taught me anything, it's teenagers can spot a poser anywhere. Man, they can just smell it. And yet their parents, this is so convicting to even my own heart. If Jesus is our real source of joy and hope, then he's got to be our real source of joy and hope. Not everything else. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard it for ourselves. This lady must have been quite believable, quite compelling, even spiritually provocative. She invited her front row to engage in the gospel through her words. There was an invitation that followed a display of a transformed life. Paul talks about this in Colossians 4, Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious. Okay, I got work to do there. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Notice this in this passage. Again, with the setting of we're walking into Thanksgiving. Our Thanksgiving meal. Do you know how to answer each person? Notice that it didn't say you know how to answer each question. It's not about answering the question, it's about answering the person because there's normally something going, there's something deeper than the question they're asking. Is that not what Jesus just showed us with the Samaritan woman? Where, where are we gonna worship? Hey, go bring your husband. There was something, you see what Jesus just, he answered, he answered everybody like this. He took them to the deeper thing, to the rich young ruler. What does it mean to have eternal life? Take some deeper, then go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. You notice how Jesus does this? He answers the person, not the question. This is, this is so big for us because so, so many of us, we're, we're, the, we're, the, you know, we're the, the trumpeters of truth, right? We got that truth club and we wanna just lay down. This is, what, this is what God's word says about whatever it is, right? We just wanna just throw it out there. But we're not doing it with gentleness and respect and we're not answering the person, we're answering a question and that's, the, that's, that, that, that's where we make the mistake. Now, any of you who have kids, you know that there's, there's some levels to this. If your five-year-old asks you what the meaning of life is, the answer is different from a five-year-old to a 15-year-old or a 35-year-old neighbor. You're able, to, you're able to answer the person and the question a little bit differently. And again here, back in this woman's story, Jesus starts to press in and she tries to make it this, this political debate and Jesus doesn't lose track. He's answering the person. So you have to determine, determine pretty quickly as you're walking with these people where they're coming from in their spiritual journey. Where are they on their faith journey? Now, of course, in this scenario, we see in a chapter what may take 10 years or 30 years to ultimately accomplish. In the 70s, there was a, 
uh, missionary that came back from overseas and he saw God doing some incredible work overseas. I mean, these whole villages were coming to Christ and before they would even get there, they would have the whole village ready or they would share the gospel and the guy said, let me go get the rest of my village so that we can all commit to Christ together. It was an incredible move of God. And yet this missionary came back over to the States. Again, this is the 70s and it just wasn't, it wasn't happening the same way and the people weren't coming to Christ. And so he wrote a book called What's Gone Wrong with the Harvest? Last name of this guy, Engel. What's Gone Wrong with the Harvest? And in it, and I hope this doesn't feel too academic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some things on the screen here in a minute. In it, he came out with his Engel scale of evangelism. And the whole point is that people start their journey on different distances and barriers to understanding the gospel. You put the little, the, the slide up that's, there we go. So basically he's saying, you know, when I was overseas, people were like right here at a negative two. They were ready to trust in Christ. And so the axis here is, a, is, is no awareness of the God at the Bible and full awareness at the top. And so some people you meet, they start with no awareness of God at all. Now that's not likely that you're going to find many of those people in America, but there are some, and I've talked to some, that they've never even heard of the name of Jesus no awareness of God, then to an, a, a slight awareness of God. And then this is not every step. I try to short it to get it on this screen. There's you know, steps in between each one of these. And then not just of, of God, but the implications of the gospel and then recognizing their personal problem that they have and walking with the holy God as their sin, ultimately to repentance and faith and then to a decision to trust Jesus Christ. Right, And then it keeps moving upward, decision to follow Jesus, experiencing life change, operating the Christian disciplines, growth in Christ, ultimately understanding that they themselves are a missionary. And everybody is on this thing somewhere. So the person that you're praying for on your front row, you're eight to 15, they might not be right here. And so you have to just be aware of this. Like these are gonna be their objections. You don't lead them in some sinner's prayer, taking them immediately to the Romans road. If they're way down here, they don't even understand that there's a God or God who loves them. So we start slowly with a lot of prayer, with a lot of discernment to know where people are on this scale. But it's not just their awareness of the gospel. It's much deeper than that. I got another slide. And I'm gonna use emojis to get us there. As I was making these slides yesterday, I was like, man, this is feeling like, you know, like a college class. I don't want it to feel like that. So I never saw a professor use emojis. Okay. So in this scale, these are people that are closed off to the gospel and these are people who are open to the gospel. Again, still no awareness, full awareness. So not only do people come with a mental, right, not understanding the gospel, but they also have a posture of their heart. Some people on the far left side are... Um, vehemently against the Christian faith. And they will argue no matter what. They are just so angry. And then the next step might be this uh, resistant and reluctant and then maybe uh, apathetic and then considering it and then seeking it and then ultimately excited about it. You see, so, so this is the posture of everyone's heart. So go to the next slide one more of these it just has the thing right okay so so this is what you're walking into and this is what you're trying to understand in your own heart you've been you, you, you've been personally changed by the gospel you've been strategically positioned or planted in a certain place and now we've got to do a little work to find out okay how do I help my friend those on my front row take a next spiritual step I've got to first understand where they're at on this if you're closed off to the gospel in your heart, but you have a lot of spiritual awareness, right? These are most people that grew up in youth group and saw hypocrisy either in their family or in, in the people they were following or pastor had a moral failure or something happened. They, they're up in this top left quadrant. They're cynics. And the only, they're the hardest people to reach. I've got some people, some friends of mine, past students that were in my youth ministry that are in this. These are the hardest people to reach. And the only way you really reach them is a radically compelling life. You have to live in such a way that it makes no sense to them that you would live that way. Not just compelling, radically compelling. You can't just be generous, you gotta be radically generous. You can't just be hospitable, you gotta be radically hospitable. 
Does that make sense? That's the only way when they see your life so radically changed that they begin to say, well, maybe the things I heard back in youth group are really true. They see the gospel lived out in front of them in a very real sermon on the mount kind of way. Not just generic uh, American Christianity. No, they see radical adherence to what Jesus has asked us to. And that's not even a crazy ask. That should be what we're all pursuing is following Jesus in that. Those on the, on the, on the bottom of the scale have no awareness and are closed. That's, I would write closed in that little quadrant. And those are people that just need to start seeing credibility in your own life and of the gospel. And then this right quadrant, people who are open to the gospel, but they're not aware, those are the curious. Those are people that we just give content to. We begin to share with them. Some of our missionaries over in Asia are doing this right now. It's incredible. Because for the longest time, they have had little to no movement. I mean, little to no movement. Years and years cultivating and plowing and sharing the gospel and planting seeds and nobody's responding. Or they would have one a year. And now, this is incredible. And I don't want you to think that this just happens. There are whole villages coming to Christ over there. Whole villages Man, that should get us excited that the spirit of God is moving in a group of people that we've been praying and sacrificing and giving and sending people to for 10 years. And now the spirit of God is blowing and whole villages are coming to Christ because they're over here. They've seen people's lives radically change. They're open to the gospel. These missionaries have been planting their life, giving credibility to the gospel. And then they end up here. I'm gonna make a step to follow Christ. I was reading even this week that it takes... One Christian sociologist thinks that it takes at least seven positive encounters with Christians, Christians to move the scale in any direction. Seven positive encounters. From, from negative 10 to negative nine, seven positive encounters with a Christian who's not just fake about their faith, but people who are deeply committed to following the ways of Jesus. You see, this is why Jesus even tells his disciples, you're reaping what you didn't sow. Like they just went into the, into the orange trees and accidentally bumped an orange and it fell off right into their hands. They're like, Jesus, look how great a harvester I am. She's like, no, dude, you didn't even plant that thing, man. You just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And that's okay. We do see some people, many people come to Christ like that. That way back when, I had a grandmother who was praying for them, diligently faithful, life radically changed. My dad used to tell me all the time about how his grandmother was one of the main reasons that he came to Christ because his grandmother was so faithful in praying for him his parents were cultural Christians maybe at least my experience of them but he had a godly grandmother who just would not give up praying for him and most of us think that you know our person's way down here and we're gonna walk with them and they're just gonna just step, 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 step. Turn to the next slide. This is how it normally looks, something like this. That you meet them and you start praying for them and you're their friend and they have some good encounters with you and they're like, man, I kind of like this thing. And then they start dating someone who's like, you know, hates the Christian faith and then they're back over here. And then, then, then you introduce them, that, you know, by God's sovereignty, they break up with them. And then they're getting closer and closer, you know, the posture of their heart, the awareness of who God is, getting closer and closer. Maybe they, you know, a, a, attend a, a thing with you, a ladies or a men's event. And then one time late at night, they get on YouTube. That's a bad place to be. And they hear all the things that of how Christianity is just fake or it's just a crutch. And then they're back over here. And you see this thing kind of happening and you just committed to investing in their life and you're pouring into their life. And this might take years and it might take decades. You just being faithful to pray for them and intercede on their behalf and invite them to take spiritual steps and display spiritual fruit in their own lives. And then they're getting closer and more and more open. And then one of these crises comes, relational cultural crisis. And they're able to see in you a hope that they've never seen in the world. You're able to share with them that hope is from Jesus and then they cross this line and you faithfully invest in them. And ultimately, through our prayer and intercession of us doing our part and praying, setting the sails of the boat and asking the Holy Spirit to blow God to do his work, they become a Christ follower. This is how it normally works. 
Again, we're seeing even in this passage, and Jesus makes note of it, you're harvesting things that someone else has been sowing for a long time. It's not always gonna be like this. I wanna remind us of this. Friends, be patient with people. Make note that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, discipled his disciples, right, for three years. And at the very end, they're not willing to serve each other. They're arguing who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom. One of them actually denies Jesus and then commits suicide. And then a whole other group of them. Jesus is literally ascending into heaven. And it, the text says, and some doubted. They're like, wow, how's he doing that? What's the jetpack? Is there a jetpack under there? Jesus had poured, Jesus himself, the perfect son of God, had poured his life into them. And they still managed to get off track all the time. It's just a good lesson for us, church, to be patient with people. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. When you meet them, you're engaging. How are you, man? How's life going? Oh, man, that rest's really terrible. I, oh, man, I hate that. You know, let's grab coffee. But behind the scenes, you are interceding for them on a level that you really mean it. Crying out to God for them. It blows my mind how little prayer people put out for those who don't know Christ and Jason and I've talked about this because it's even seen in our own lives a little bit we get so focused on the here and now and all the things and we miss this we miss God's call his invitation to partner with him in prayer for these people that are on our front row in James it says the fervent prayer this is King James is how I remembered it sorry the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The fervent prayer, the ongoing continuous prayer of someone who's right with God accomplishes a lot. And I think that's my call to us as a church today is we would repent of our own apathy and our own hearts and we begin at least, Lord, give me a heart of intercession for my friends, for my coworkers. Lovelace says this, if the church were to intercede daily, simply for the most obvious spiritual concerns visible in their homes, their workplaces, their local churches, their nations and the world, the transformation which would result would be incalculable, only through our prayer. Not only would God certainly change those situations in response to prayer, we have Christ's word that when we ask in his name, he's gonna do more than we ask or think. But the church's comprehension of its task would attain an unprecedented sharpness of focus. Perhaps much of our prayer now should simply be for God to pour out such a spirit of prayer and supplication in the hearts of his people. This is what I've been praying for you all week. This is what I've been praying for my own heart. Lord, would you give me such a spirit of prayer and supplication for the nation, for my neighbors? for my front row. Would you take out your Oikos card real quick? We're gonna end in worship here in a minute and I'll be back to pray with you in just a minute. We're not, we're not quite there yet, but I want you right now, and there's a lot of spaces on there and I want you to take and pray over that. But this morning, I just want you to write a name or two down on that card. People in your front row, who is God sending you to? That's the best of first. Who's, he, who's in your front row? For parents, it could be your kids, certainly. If they're not believers in Christ, it could be people that you work with. It could be a neighbor. It could be a barista at the Starbucks that you see all the time and God just kind of put a check on your heart to pray for them. Listen, this is what God does. Just last night, I'm sitting on my couch. God put such a deep burden on my heart to pray for my friend Brandon. You know Brandon, he's come a couple times, got the really big long beard. He helps out with our... Um, kids ministry he's got he's got COVID he's a weekend he's not doing very well and he was debating whether to go to the hospital last night God put such a burden in my heart to pray for him so I started praying for Brandon and I sent him a little text and he said man I'm not good, doing good please pray thank you for praying keep praying and I just keep praying just sitting right there on the couch this is I'm not I'm not lighting incense candles I'm this not I'm not throwing oil around everywhere I'm just I'm just sitting on my couch praying for my brother because God put a burden in my heart to pray for him and I'm just praying 
texted me about 10 minutes later. He said, man, those prayers are working. You would not believe my fever just broke with no medicine. God is answering your prayers. God responds to the prayers of his people. He really does. We have got to believe that church. We've got to believe that Jesus said he would do more than we ask or think when we go to him in prayer. We've got to believe that. And we've got to persevere in prayer. Not just randomly praying like we feel like we're in such a fast food, fast paced society. We's like, well, I prayed for that guy once. No, no, no. When God puts his burden, we begin to intercede and pray for that. I'm so thankful that my great, great grandmother invested in my dad. Or I would not even be a believer today, probably. She didn't give up praying. She just prayed and she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. Who's God leading you to? Just a name or two. I just want you to write that name. Sometimes it helps us to put some action to our faith. And we're just going to write a name or two down. I want you to fill the whole card out. I want you to take it with you. You might have a little time off. Even today, don't be this one of these things that gets stuck in like the center of your car. This is important to the heart of God, folks. Then you'd ask the question, where where are those people on their faith journey? They have any awareness of the gospel? Are they are they are they cynics? They're just so closed off. And God can reach those people. I believe it. Where are they on their faith journey? And then, lastly, what what's their next step? How do you help take the step? Maybe it's just your overwhelming generosity. Maybe you invite them to go serve at the hub with you on Sunday nights. Maybe they don't have a place to be. You invite them to your house for Thanksgiving. Maybe you bring something to them. Maybe it's radical hospitality. Maybe radical generosity. Maybe radical friendship. How do you help them take a spiritual step? In Acts 4.20, the apostle says, we cannot help speaking of what we've seen and heard. We just can't help talking about it. God's done such incredible things. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, it's out of the heart the mouth speaks this is why we started this church in the first place not to offer a better religious product in the church down the road or even different environment and we came as a rescue ship to see people come to Christ from lost people to become safe people that was the heart behind the planting of this church lost and confused and hurting people who are headed toward an eternity separated from God and God sent us there with the beautiful life-saving message of the gospel. And friends, that's not gonna happen because of my sermons. I'm preaching my brains out up here, but it's not gonna happen because of the sermons. It's not gonna happen because of the songs. It's gonna happen because of you, your life, your message, your front row. I read a statistic last year that 70% of pastors In 2020, because of this pandemic, 70% of pastors are looking for other work. 70%. It's been so discouraging. I was talking to a friend about that even this week. That's what we lead with when we talk to each other. What's been the hardest thing in your week? just told him just some of the discouragement of people I haven't heard from people that are missing I don't know what's going on in their life and he said let me encourage you with this that you are the best person that God has in his kingdom to reach the people that he sent you to it just hung in my heart and produced so much hope you're the best person that God has in his kingdom to reach the people that he sent you to and that's not just true of me it's true of you you're the best person that God has in the kingdom of all of eternity, he picked this moment for you to be here. For those people to be around you, for you to live a life in front of that front row, ultimately to show them and share the gospel with them. The hour is urgent, the need is great, the harvest is plenty and ripe, as Jesus says, he's sending you. And I want to invite you to respond today just in this way. But just laying those names you wrote down at the feet of Jesus and interceding for them. Phil's going to play. We're going to sing in just a minute. Would you just intercede on behalf of those people? 
Some of us need to repent of our apathy. We need to pray as that loveless quote says that God would pour out such a spirit of prayer and supplication in our own hearts. might be some of you in this room that want to actually respond to the gospel today that you've been doing you for a long time and it's just not working there's no joy there's no real peace in your life today's the day that you step across the line of faith and put your faith and trust in Jesus I'd invite you to do that today you can just tell somebody whoever brought you I'll be in the back I'd love to talk to you about it Christ is out there on the redemptive edge you remember that from a sermon a couple of months ago church let's meet him there let me pray for us God thank you for your grace your mercy for these friends of mine in the room and those watching online Lord let us not be so distracted by the enemy Lord for those of us who have cold calloused apathetic hearts for the lost. We pray for a spirit of prayer and supplication in our own hearts. Lord, our hearts would go, would, would grow hot for you and our hearts would line up with yours for the lost. Like for others, Maybe some grandparents in here praying for their grandchildren or adults praying for their own kids that are walking away from the gospel. Lord, give them the passion to continue in prayer, to keep knocking. Lord, we pray for a harvest of souls. We really do. Lord, would you do something in our day? Lord, not because of us, but because this is your heart, the heart of love of God the Father who is, you say even in heaven, the angels are looking over, just waiting to rejoice, to throw a party for one sinner that would repent. Lord, I pray that the angels are throwing parties every day because of the seeds that are being planted from the people in this very room. Or do something in our day. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Would you stand with us?